Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey friends, and welcome to the very last day of June. We have made it through our first month of summer. I hope that your June has treated you well. Today we have a great show for you, but before we get to the show, I want to tell you about something fun that we're doing at the happy hour. We are partnering with an organization called ICM, the global church developer. And you guys, we're building a church together in Northern Uganda. Now this church has been alive and well and active for 30 plus years. Their pastor has been doing amazing work at their Karuma church but they don't have a building. And so we want to come alongside them. They have the land, they have the workers, and we want to help bring in the funds to help them have a building where they can continue to meet and do the work that God's asked them to do. ICM, the organization that I'm partnering with, exists to transform lives by building churches and training disciples worldwide. They help indigenous Christians build permanent, healthy churches and equip them with discipleship materials for oral learners in their native languages. You guys, The church needs this around the world, and we get to partner with Pastor Jeffrey. He was working so hard to shepherd his church, and we want to help them with a building. So if you want to come alongside us and donate, and listen, no donation is too small, go to jamieivy.com slash buildachurch, and it will take you directly to the donation page. I cannot wait to see what happens in this village as we help them. We come alongside and help them build their building. Now, today is a really great show that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you. My guest is Rebecca McLaughlin, and Rebecca is smart. She holds a PhD from Cambridge, a theology degree from Oak Hill College. Her first book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, I read it this past January loved it, devoured it, want everyone to read it. And I've been wanting to talk to her since I closed the last page of that book. This conversation we had today, it could have been over three hours long. Don't worry, it's not. There's just so much to talk about. In today's episode, we talk a lot about this book I mentioned and how some parts of it wrestle with difficult history and topics. Also heavily dives into conversations about LGBTQ and how it's an area that so many Christians just choose to bury their heads in the sand with. She talks about her own experience with same-sex attraction, how she reconciles her devotion to Christ with a desire she never asked for. It's so important for us to have safe communities to have these conversations, and Rebecca encourages us that as well. Friends, you're really going to enjoy our conversation today. And we went a little deeper for a conversation that we're putting up on YouTube about the growth and diversity of the global church. So it's over on YouTube, youtube.com slash Jamie Ivy. Rebecca and I sit down and we actually talk about what does the global church look like right now, which guys, that's why I love partnering with organizations that are helping churches around the world have buildings to meet in, which is why we're partnering to build the church uh, for Pastor Jeffrey and his people in Karuma northern uganda remember you can go to jamieivy.com slash build a church all right friends here's my conversation with rebecca rebecca welcome to the happy hour thanks for having me uh i want to just verbally affirm how excited i am that you are here okay so for the listener i told rebecca this when she came in but In late 2018, early 2019, a book came across my desk called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And the cover, Rebecca, I mean, it's so beautiful. I know. I have nothing to do with it. And I agree. It's It's so beautiful. So it caught my attention and I didn't know who you were. And so it went into the pile of, I think I want to read this someday. She's not coming on the show. It wasn't a rush, right? And then I saw my friend Chris Kane post about it, our mutual friend. And I thought, 
okay, well, if Chris Kane's reading it, I'm in. <laughs> and then I finally was able to pick up this book this January. Our family went to Mexico and I read this book on the beach, which reading any book on the beach is where I want to be like forever. <laughs> right. I'll mention that. I hope in heaven there's beaches and books and wine, new wine. It'll be so mm. great. <laughs> I read this book and I devoured it. Um, and I came home and I told my friends, I was like, you have to read this book. Now, here's what I said. And, and I hope that you take this the right way. I said, it's way more academic than I'm used to reading. But I couldn't stop. Is that a compliment? That's a huge compliment. Okay, good. The, the couldn't stop part. Yeah, because I was telling, uh, I was talking to Chris last night, actually, about our interview. And I was like, here's the deal. I think I've been a deeper thinker in the last five years. Like, I devoured to read more deeply. And this book met me right where I was, where it felt like I went deep and I also felt moved by it. So... Thank you for writing it. I'm glad. My best friend, who is not a Christian, who I dedicated the book to, Natasha, I gave her a copy after having dedicated it to her, and then she didn't read it. And then some other friend of hers, who is also not a Christian, said, "Look, you have to read a book if it's been dedicated to you." <laughs> so she, I mean, she's very. She has two kids and a very demanding job. So she started reading my book, and I texted her because she's, you know, my best friend. I said, "Oh, this somebody said that they couldn't put my book down," and she said, "I wish I had that problem." <laughs> So Natasha did not have that problem. She finished it in the end, but she didn't have quite the same problem. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so introduce yourself real quick, and then I have – we're going to go places today. So tell everyone where you live, all the things, your job, what you do. Gosh, all the things. Uh, I come from the UK, in case no one can notice notice that from my my deep southern accent. Uh, I'm married to a guy from Oklahoma, interestingly. We met in the UK. Wow. He is one of the only Americans I know who didn't want to live in England. Okay. I feel like I'm always meeting Americans who say they wish they lived in England, okay. not, not him. Not him. He was happy with that Oklahoma. Well, actually, no. We, <laughs> That's we why moved he was to in, Boston. Okay, got it. I mean, not that he was unhappy in Oklahoma, but we both, uh, we felt like Boston was as close to living in England as you can be mm-hmm. while still living in America, both yeah. geographically and culturally. So, yeah, we got married right at the end of his PhD. I just finished my PhD and just done a seminary degree because... Being a student was fun, so why not string it out? And then, yeah, we moved here. We have three children who are 10, 8, and 2. And for the first nine years that I was here, I worked for an organization called the Veritas Forum, where a lot of what I was doing was talking with Christian professors at leading secular universities like Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge, and hearing about their stories of faith, hearing about their research and how they put their faith together with their work, how their faith motivates them in their work. And at the end of that, I just felt like I had a a roadmap of where the conversation about Christianity is and in all these different academic spheres that are supposed to have disproved or discredited Christianity. I was like, I know a a world expert in that field who is a Christian, and I didn't want to keep that to myself. Mm -hmm. So confronting Christianity was just trying to share that roadmap with the world. You do that so well. And even saying I knew these academics and they were Christians and they proved the worldview that you believe in from the biblical Mm -hmm. worldview. I love that. Now, here's a question for you about this book. Who did you write this for? Well, I wrote it for my friend Natasha and for all the other friends who I've made over the years. I lived a long time in kind of academic, mostly secular settings who are really kind people, who are very thoughtful, very smart people, who have very good reasons for not even considering whether Christianity might be true or not. Mm. You know, why on earth would you be a Christian given racism? Why would you be a Christian given the anti-intellectual sort of mindset that Christians have? Why would you be a Christian when Christians uh, don't affirm LGBT identities? Like all the the good moral and, and intellectual reasons that my friends have for not being Christians, I wanted to look at each of those carefully and then explain why I thought if you look more closely, you found they were signposts to Jesus rather than roadblocks to faith in him. So yeah, I wrote it for non-Christians who are willing to 
take a look and to be challenged, try to start with a lot of things that they would agree with or that, you know, I can say, well, any non-Christian professor in this field would agree with this. So let's sort of start there. And I also wrote it for Christians who are either struggling with these questions themselves or trying to witness to friends and trying to have some of those harder conversations. You know, when I read it, I wondered, is she writing this for non-Christians or Christians? Because here's what I felt when I read it as someone who's been following Jesus for 20 years. I felt like you gave me different facts to stand on Hmm. that culturally in America, like as cultural Christianity can sometimes tend to get. I don't think I developed those legs before in some ways. Mm. Like some ways I'm like, oh, yes, 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 yes. But in other ways, I thought this is empowering for followers of Jesus to know and believe these things other than I just believe because I've been told. Mm. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so to me, I wondered, was this for just Natasha or was this also for me? who's like, I need my legs to be stronger. I think for a lot of Christians, and there have been moments in my life when I felt like this, there are these issues that are kind of floating around in our peripheral vision. And honestly, we know they're there, but we don't really want to look at them Mm. straight in the face because we're kind of afraid that if we do, then everything's going to come crashing down. So I think for each of us, those questions or issues might look different. But my aim was to cover many of those and and to say to people, okay, let's take those out of the peripheral vision. Let's stop being haunted by these sort of ghosts in our minds. Mm -hmm. And instead, let's look carefully at each one of them and see how Jesus actually becomes more attractive when you look carefully at that issue rather than less. Wow. One of the things that you started out with was you go through these 12 hard questions, everything from does Christianity crush diversity? Does religion hinder morality? Does religion cause violence? Can we take the Bible literally? Women, LGBTQ, diversity, race. I mean, you go through it all, women and the Bible and stuff. And and you start here, doesn't Christianity crush diversity in the chapter like this? The fact that Christianity has been a multicultural, multiracial, multi-ethnic movement since its inception does not excuse the ways Westerners have abused Christian identity to crush other cultures. After the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine in the fourth century, Western Christianity went from being the faith of a persecuted minority to being linked with the political power of an empire, and power is perhaps humanity's most dangerous drug. I read that and I couldn't help to think that some people feel that this Christianity that we experience here in America is how it's always been Mm. or how Mm. it should be or what it is. Can you dissect a little bit about, I mean, you said it went from being a faith of persecuted minority to being linked with the political power of an empire. Mm-hmm. How are we mm-hmm. seeing that even today in 2021? Yeah, well, maybe just first to give Constantine his due and the early kind of Christian emperors who have had major faults as pretty much any Christian leader who's <laughs> tied up in politics has. There were ways in which, of course, as we look back over the history of the church, we can see all sorts of ways in which Christians have failed to deliver on Jesus's ethical calls. But there are also ways in which they did start to deliver on them in ways that were unprecedented in the world. So, for example, in the Greco-Roman Empire into which Christianity was born, it was perfectly normal to leave your newborn baby out to die if you didn't want them, especially if they were girls. Because mm. o- often people, you know, if you couldn't afford to have as many children, children as you're yeah. having, then, you know, leave your baby girls out to die. And that was one of the things that the Christians started to change because of the Bible saying that all humans are made in God's image. And then especially because of the way that Jesus had treated babies. Mm. Christians started picking these babies up. And once Christians started to get that political power, they started to put in legislation to say, actually, it's not okay to just leave babies out to die. But rather than just making that the law, they actually first introduced legislation to help poor families that couldn't provide for their kids. So it's sort of that that both and of the pro-life idea from the first. 
And the idea that we think today is a self-evident truth that all human beings are created equal wasn't at all self-evident at that time. And in fact, it hasn't been self-evident in most cultures over history. So there are a lot of things today where we can look back at the history of the church and we can critique it morally. Mm -hmm. But we need to recognize that when we do that, we're actually doing it on the basis of Christian ethics. And that even our, our, our least Christian friends today are critiquing the church on the basis of Christian ethics because they're saying, okay, Christians haven't always acted like all humans are equal. Right. True. Mm -hmm. But why do we think that that's the case? It's actually because of Christianity. And when I wrote Confronting Christianity, I was pretty sure that that was true, that this idea of universal human equality, human rights, uh, the idea that the weak and the oppressed and the marginalized shouldn't be trampled by the, the rich and the strong and the mm -hmm. powerful, but that they should actually be protected. Like these kinds of ideas, the idea that women were equal to men, mm -hmm. it's pretty sure that those were, were not self-evident truths, but actually biblical truths. Right. What's been interesting to me the last couple of years as I've read more from some leading atheists and agnostic thinkers is how clearly some atheist thinkers today are articulating just that that all of this mm. comes from Christianity. The very basic assumptions we have about morality yeah. come straight to us from Christianity. And if we take Christianity away, we don't have any reason to believe them anymore. It's so interesting. You know, it also makes me think about how your new book, The Secular Creed, which full disclosure, I haven't read, I told you that, but I know exactly, I know what it's about. And one of the things that we, you know, talk about like all people, you know, are equal value and that should be treated that way. Well, I think right now we have a little like fork in the road here hmm. in you know Christianity. And you said in your chapter on isn't Christianity homophobic, which very great question for lots of people who are exploring the faith. You said this, our ability to make choices about what we do with our attractions is part of what makes the rhetorical entanglement of racial diversity and diversity of sexual lifestyle so problematic. Mm. The gay rights movement is often heralded as the new civil rights movement. And those who question gay marriage are equated with 60s segregationists, mm. prejudiced bigots on the wrong side of history. I think, Rebecca, that when people think through this conversation, the reason they choose to not say anything is because they don't want to be looked at that. Right, right. So I think my question for you is, how do we as followers of Jesus who believe a, a worldview that comes from Scripture, mm -hmm. how do we not look like those 60s mm -hmm. segregationist mm -hmm. people? Mm -hmm. I think the first thing we need to do is to recognize that the problem with the 60s segregationists was not that they were too Christian. It was that they weren't half Christian enough. And in order to really reckon with the cultural moment that we're in now, we actually need to be willing to reckon with the cultural history of this country and also of my country, just to be clear. I mean, come from the UK, but given that slave traders from my country transported millions of enslaved Africans to your country, you know, we have as much blood on yeah. our hands as anyone. So don't hear any of this as me kind of pointing fingers mm -hmm. from my, my righteous British <laughs> side. Um, but the, the reality that from the very first, when the Declaration of Independence declared that all human beings were created equal and that this was a self-evident truth. At that time, it was in the middle of where my country was transporting enslaved Africans to this country. And so the history of slavery, this history of segregation, the history of appalling racial oppression in this country that takes us up, up to the 1960s and, and beyond is an anti-Christian, sub-Christian, heretical evil that we as Christians today, especially as white Christians like me and, and you know, I identify as a white evangelical, we need to reckon with that. And I think it's very hard for us to, whatever our tribe is, whatever our family is, whatever you know, group we associate with, it's, it's very hard for us to truly hear critiques of our own tribe and to say, you know what, I think that's right. Mm. And so I think the first thing that, that we need to do today in this cultural moment is 
to reckon with that, to me, it's very much in line with what the Bible always calls us to, which is to repent and believe. And I think often today for white evangelicals like me, it's much easier to sort of sweep stuff under the carpet and to cling on to this idea that, well, you know, America's always really been a Christian country and it's actually only since the 60s that things started to go wrong. And there's some truth in that. I mean, in the, in the 60s, we had the sexual revolution. Uh, we had the setup for the full legalization of abortion in the early 70s um, that led into the gay rights movement, et cetera, et cetera. It's certainly true that there are some ways in which Christian ethics, um, the public popular level, have been eroded since the 60s. But the 60s was also the first time that black Americans were getting any measure of justice. Yep. So when we look at this equivalence that people make between the gay rights movement and the civil rights movement, or the, the 60s segregationist and the Christian today who says that they don't think the Bible affirms gay marriage for mm-hmm. believers. We need to do some careful untangling and we need to be willing to say, actually, yes, the 60s, 60s segregationists were profoundly wrong and that we today are actually still living with the overhang of, yeah. of that heritage. It yeah. wasn't long ago. Right. I mean, it's easy for those of us who aren't as old, you know, old yeah. enough to have actually lived through uh-huh. this. It's easiest for us to think this was a long time ago. Yeah. No, but my parents were in high school. It's not exactly. Yeah. Your parents were in high school. You know, it's one generation mm-hmm above us and so some of the ways in which I think can be easy for white evangelicals to kind of bury their heads in the sand about this um, are hugely problematic but what tends to happen on the the other side is people say okay I recognise the ways in which the church has been complicit in this whole history and so I'm going to kind of buy into the idea that actually the sort of arc of history that idea that we're actually um, needing now to move on in ways unprecedented ways mm-hmm. from Christian teaching when it comes to sexual ethics because we don't want to be caught on the wrong side right. of history right now the problem is the 60s segregationists weren't on the wrong side of history they're on the wrong side of the scriptures that's good and if there is no God there's no reason to think there is a side of history. There's mm-hmm. no reason to think there's this big story that's being told where justice is going to come in the end. Yeah. There's no reason to think that actually human beings have rights or that, you know, whether it's equality of black people and white people and the need to protect the historically racially oppressed or whether it's care for an equality for people who um, identify as sexual minorities. Like, it's arguments on both sides are actually mm-hmm. grounded on Christian ideas. Right. And we need to recognise that in order to be able to both sort of critique our, our own views and to gently critique the views of our yeah. friends. You know, I think there's another side to that as well, which would be people who would call themselves followers of Jesus, who have a lot of, I'll use the word misunderstanding, maybe lack of care, lack of love, Mm. lack of empathy for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters versus racial injustice in our country. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes I even see a like, oh, I'm going to speak out against people that might have a different orientation than me, but I'm going to ignore the fact that we still do, like you say, live in a bunch of consequences mm-hmm. from our country's mm-hmm. founding and the 60s and Jim Crow. So how do you talk to people about kind of maybe reconciling both of those? I think the first thing is to examine the scriptures and there we'll see that the Bible calls us in one direction when it comes to racial justice and equality and a completely different direction when it comes to any kind of sexual practice outside of male-female marriage. And so we need to sort of look at the scriptures first. And then we actually need to look at the people. And when that comes to questions around race, we need to recognize that 
black Americans are actually significantly more likely to identify as Christians than their white peers. They're more likely to go to church every week, to read the Bible, to pray, to hold beliefs that are actually evangelical beliefs, whether or not that specific would be used. Mm -hmm. So we need to reckon when it comes to race that actually this is our family Mm -hmm. and it's members of our family who were kicked out in the first instance. And when it comes to LGBT identities, we actually first also need to reckon with the fact that it's it's members of our family. I mean, I think I speak as someone who's always been primarily attracted to women. I grew up in a Christian home and it was always something, I mean, honestly, it was something I thought I would grow out of and I wouldn't have to sort of deal with in the longer term. It was never in my mind a possibility that I would one day marry a woman rather than a man. Because you grew up in a Christian home. And- yeah, because I knew what the Bible, I knew at least at a basic level what the Bible taught about these things. So I, I didn't have that vision for myself But I also didn't feel like it was something that I could talk to my Christian friends about. I felt sort of profound shame and fear of rejection by my friends. And I think, honestly, one of Satan's greatest tools against any of us is to make us feel like our particular temptations are ones we can't talk to our friends about. I'm the only one and no one would ever understand. And I mean, I grew up in where from the pulpit, I would have heard that people who are gay are choosing to live a life of sin. Right. And so that also brings a whole other dynamic to someone yeah. who's like, oh my gosh, yeah. what are I? Which is, and that statement is sort of both true and untrue because all of us actually have a choice about what we do in light of our attractions. Mm. And frankly, pretty much none of us are going to live a whole life and never be attracted to someone we're not married to. And I think that's true whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're male, whether you're female, whatever your typical patterns of attraction are, The reality is there'll be few people listening to this conversation who won't be able to be like, you know, yeah, there have been times when I've been attracted to someone who I was not married to. Rachel, your friend who was on the show, Mm -hmm. said that. and It was the first time I ever thought that. Isn't that sad that I'm a 40-something-year-old woman and never equated the fact that, like, I'm no different because I'm not attracted to women. I'm attracted to men. But why am I so concerned about, oh, are you, as Rebecca, married to a man? Are you Mm -hmm. still attracted to women? Mm -hmm. Why is that concerning to me? And no one's asking me, Jamie, are you attracted to other men? Right. That's what, and I was like, light bulb moment of going, well, this isn't fair. Yeah. That someone would be so concerned about your attraction to women. But what about my attraction to men? Yeah, yeah. People should be asking me. Well, indeed. (laughs) And so so that, for for us as Christians, I think we all need to be reckoned with the fact we're in the same boat. And we're all going to be struggling with temptations of one sort or another. And probably, you know, romantic or sexual temptation will be part of that. And we need each other. Yeah. We also, I think, need to recognize that the ways in which sometimes gay marriage is equated to mixed race marriage, for example, or there's a sort of clumsy and simplistic equivalence that people make between being gay and being black, as in, you know, both people in in both of these categories have experienced really hard things. Mm -hmm. Historically, that's certainly true. But it can be really easy to actually take the agency out of the equation. Because, you know, you and I, if you're born with a certain racial heritage, just you're born with it, there's no moral weight to it. There's nothing that we can do to change it, really. And it's equally good before God's eyes. When it comes to what we do with our bodies sexually, actually, it makes a huge difference And we're each making moral decisions about this. Again, whether we're attracted to people of the opposite sex or the same sex or whether we're attracted to lots of different people Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, we're making moral decisions about it. And sometimes people talk as if, for example, I, as someone who's always been attracted to women, that it's almost immoral for me not to have followed through on those attractions, that it's somehow denying my identity or expecting anyone else to do that is a profound denial of who they are. Almost like someone would say you're being oppressed and not being able to live out the desires of your heart, self. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, but here's the thing. Someone asked me in an interview recently, so, you know, are you saying that 
LGBT people need to deny themselves in order to become a Christian? I said, yeah. Actually, Jesus says that anyone who wants to come after him must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. This, this idea that to say that we must deny our desires, whether sexual or otherwise, is somehow incompatible with living a full and thriving life. Well, actually, the whole of Christian ethics gives the lie to that. So I think we need to be careful to distinguish between somebody's patterns of attraction and their choices that they make. So to go back to your pastor's you know, pretty mm-hmm. unhelpful statement that gay yeah. people have yeah. chosen uh-huh. a life of sin. Well, actually, for most people, we don't choose our patterns of attraction in the first place. Yep. But we do then choose our actions. So there is an extent to which, you know, any of us could be choosing to live sinfully sexually. Mm-hmm. There's an extent to which all of us, from Jesus' perspective, actually are sexual sinners. Mm-hmm. You know, he says if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, then he's committed adultery in yeah. his heart. And I think that applies to looking at a man as well. Although, yeah. you know, I wouldn't know. <laughs> it seems though that over the past 10 years or so, mm. I've seen it become much more, I don't want to use the words acceptable, but much more, maybe the word is acceptable. I've seen a lot of people who have forgo the God's view of sexuality from what we have had that ethics for since the beginning of scripture, mm. since the beginning of Jesus. I mean, they'll say, well, Jesus never talked about marriage, but he actually does. Why do you think it's becoming easier for people who would call themselves Christians mm. and believe in scripture to let that go is almost that must not mean what it said. I think as the culture around us starts to see us not just as sort of weird and deluded, but actually as immoral, it's really hard. You're saying people who would hold to a yes. godly view of sexuality as being immoral. Right. So for many of our, our non-Christian peers today, the fact that you or I would not affirm gay marriage, at least for believers, and I do think it's helpful to distinguish between what we I'm glad you said expect that. of folks mm-hmm. within the church and what we expect from folks outside the church, because I, I think the Bible you know, makes that, that yeah. distinction quite clearly. To say that we don't fully affirm gay marriage and that actually gay relationships are, from a biblical perspective, sinful, that's seen as a profoundly immoral statement to make in our current culture. And so I think it's easier if you want to go with the flow of the culture at large, it's easier to backpedal on those Mm -hmm. beliefs. And also, I think folks who have looked at how Christians have often treated gay and lesbian people both outside the church and within the church and recognize the sinful ways in which actually Christians have treated gay and lesbian people both outside the church and inside the church, there's a right urge to repentance and and Mm. wanting to restore that. But actually that then takes people to a place of saying, okay, so in order to properly kind of correct this, I need to throw out what the Bible says about these things. It almost feels easier. Like then I don't have to do the work and then I don't get looked at as if I'm in that camp of people who have said that. Yeah. And I think also because it often is tied up in people's history of what they've heard Mm -hmm. with racist ideas. Like actually, you know, mm-hmm. there. I mean, my husband grew up in Oklahoma in a sort of white church context where he certainly heard from various sources that marriage across racial boundaries wasn't God's best. You know, those kinds of things which are profoundly unbiblical. Profoundly. But if you've heard that and mm-hmm. you've heard, you know, legitimately homophobic words out of the mouth of your pastor growing up or whoever it was, and I use that word homophobic to mean like an actual fear and hatred of gay people mm-hmm. rather than to mean simply upholding the, the Bible's sort of standards yeah. for sexual ethics, then it, it's understandable to yeah. me why people would say, do you know what? I don't think this is what Jesus is for. And they're right. But what people miss, and this is actually something that makes me really sad, 
I think we have missed the big picture of what the Bible's saying about sexuality. It's a little bit like back in the days before we had iPhones. I don't know if you remember when, if you wanted to take a photo, you actually had to have a camera. Yes. And you took your pictures on your camera with a film. And then after you'd filled up your little film, you'd take it to the store to get developed. And when those pictures came back, you got the prints of the, in my case, terrible photos you'd taken, but I'm sure in your case, beautiful <laughs> photos. And then you get these little negatives. That, do you remember those yep. sort oh, of yeah. black and white monochrome? Oh, my mom has, I think she has thousands of them in a room in her house. Right. Yes. So these little, you know, for those who aren't old enough to remember this, little black and white strips. <laughs> and if you held your negatives up to the sun, you could just about make out the picture. We, I think, have held on to Christian marriage as if it were the real thing, as if it were the massive color print that everything's really about. But if we look at the Bible, the massive color print is Jesus' love for his church. And Christian marriage at its best is a tiny little sort of monochrome negative of that. So for many people, they look at what the Bible says about gay relationships and it doesn't really make any sense to them. It's like arbitrary, cruel rules that God's put in place for no particular reason. So they think, well, this must be just like a cultural thing from back in the day. And today, culture is different, so we can kind yeah. of change that. They didn't realize that actually there's, there's a, a beautiful story being told by male-female marriage, which is about Jesus' love for his church, which is a love across difference. And they, they also miss what the Bible says about friendship and love within the body of Christ, which I think is not exclusively so, but often best expressed in same-sex relationships. They, they lose or miss the incredibly high vision for intimacy that the Bible gives us, non-sexual intimacy between folks of the same sex. I mean, yeah. Paul calls his friend Anisimus his very heart. Mm-hmm. And I always love to you know, ask Christian guys, how comfortable would you feel calling a really close male friend yeah. your very heart? Yeah. Like it's sort of mm-hmm. awkward for us. Yeah. Yeah. But that vision of us as one body together, as brothers and sisters, as knit together in love, as Paul puts it, that almost embarrassing level of intimacy they were called to as believers one with another shows that actually same-sex relationships aren't, rejected by the bible they're actually given a beautiful Mm -hmm. yeah they're elevated they're given a beautiful space but it's not the same space as the space for marriage they're pointing to different different aspects of jesus's love when sam albert was on a couple months ago we talked about his book seven myths of singleness that book is so good i love that book so much and i told him you'll think this is funny i told him i was going to start a book club with my kids this summer Mm. on his book why does god care who i sleep with Mm. oh i got six copies on my desk (laughs) ivy family book club starts the first week school's out (laughs) But one thing that he talked about that I thought was so interesting that a lot of people miss is that we confuse sex with intimacy. Yeah. And so therefore there's this fear of intimacy because that must equal sex. Yeah. And then if I'm not married, I miss out on intimacy. Mm-hmm. And so many often people who are married are having sex and missing out on intimacy. Yeah. And it's yeah. not what God yeah. asked yeah. from us at all. You said this about loneliness. This is in your book, um, Confronting Christianity. Last summer, I took a long walk with a friend who was considering dating women. She'd had bad experiences with men. She'd been inspired by a lesbian couple who seemed to model all sorts of Christian goods. And she was finding herself attracted to certain women. I brought up Jesus' call on all Christians to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him, irrespective of the cost. She said it seemed unfair that same-sex attracted Christians should be sentenced to loneliness. And then you said, I was reading the book of Acts at the time. I observed that while the first Christians faced every kind of suffering, even being stoned to death, there was one struggle they did not face, and that was loneliness. Mm. And if we reduce Christian community to sexual relationships and the nuclear family, Family, we are utterly failing to deliver on biblical ethics. Mm, yeah. And that struck me when I read it because you also said in there, Christians who are have same-sex friends, and I want to talk to you about what that looks like for you. The solution is not friendship starvation, but mm. it's nourishment, you mm-hmm. said. And so mm-hmm. what does it look like for even you as a woman who's same-sex attracted, married to a man? How do you nourish those same-sex um, mm. friendships 
that I'm going to guess is the same way I nourish mine, but I'm just going to throw that out there for <laughs> you. But I'm guessing that. But talk about that real quick. Yeah, and I think it is specifically challenging for same-sex attracted Christians. I remember when I first started talking with even my good friends about this a few years ago, and a friend of mine suggested to me, she said, well, why don't you just only make friends with people you're not attracted to? And I kind of laughed. I mean, I didn't quite laugh because I was still at the very early stages of being able to talk. And by the way, this was I was well into my 30s when I was even able to talk to my closest Christian friends about mm-hmm. my same-sex attraction. So anyone listening to this, I want you to know you have friends They may be married with three children. You may have no idea whatsoever, but they could be really, this could be a profound struggle for them and something that they haven't been able to talk to anybody about. So try and be a safe person for them to talk to. When my friend said that, I was like, that's almost funny to me because sometimes had an experience where I've met somebody and from the first, I'm like, oh, I'm just like struck by how beautiful you are. And that just feels tricky. And then as I've got to know them, everything's been fine. Yeah. I've just like, whatever has mm-hmm. happened in my heart, it's all been good. And then I've had other situations where I've started to get to know somebody and I wouldn't at first have zero attraction to them whatsoever. But then something about the contours of the relationship just sort of hits me in a certain yeah. way. And my guess is that that's true for people who are opposite sex attracted as well, that sometimes... I'll verify. I'll shake my head. You yes. can verify. Okay, great. <laughs> it's not just me. So I think there are unique challenges to being a Christian who's trying to pursue like real intimate friendship at the same time as knowing that there's a a potential to be attracted to your friends. And I think one of the key things is to pursue more than one really close friendship. So I think it's tempting for Christians who are really sure about the biblical ethics when it comes to sex, but who are same-sex attracted, it's sort of tempting to think, okay, what I can do here is I can figure out my like one girlfriend Mm -hmm. who kind of in my heart really is my girlfriend, Yeah, Mm -hmm. even though we're just not doing physical things yeah. but like I have a very exclusive relationship with that mm-hmm. one person and what I have learned sort of the hard way <laughs> you know even as a married person for the last sort of 13 years is that that doesn't work and I think this is wise for anyone actually but you need to be pursuing more than one close friendship at a time yeah I took on you know Natasha's my best friend who I dedicated my book to and and Rachel who you mentioned earlier is my sort of Christian I have like a non-Christian best friend and a Christian best friend <laughs> and I have other like really really close yeah. friends who For me, it's just super important to be deeply engaging with more than one person so that I'm not kind of totally pulled in one direction or the other. I think it's important to have some friends to whom you can be brutally honest. Mm -hmm. And I I have a prayer partner who I meet with every week. And I'll tell, like, if I have, like, a weird dream about something, I'll be like, hey, I'm just telling you this just to plant a flag because I don't think this is an issue right now, but maybe in three years' time it will be. And I need you to be there to tell me let's work on yeah. this right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think having people who you can be brutally honest with, again, I mean, probably... Same thing. Probably I'm not, like, have yeah. had dreams and called um, Annie and Amanda and be like, hey, I need to talk right. about this. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also just to hold on to the fact that it is my and your, if talking to anyone who's experienced the same-sex attraction, it is your God-given right to have close Christian friends of the same sex. And that is something that Satan is going to try to rob you of so hard. I mean, I've had people come up to me and say, I remember a married woman after a conference saying, I've always been attracted to women. What I've done for the last 10 years is basically not got close to anyone because I'm so terrified Mm -hmm. of making a mistake. And that's what I hear like time and again from people of saying, I've just pulled back and pulled back and pulled back. And I don't think that's how we can live or should live as Christians I think we need to hold on to the good things that God's given us, even if there are times when it's hard and challenging and we need to 
sort of repent. We need to have accountability. We need to work. I think we need to believe the good things that God gives us through his word, which isn't just marriage, but is also deep, intimate friendship. Yeah, the intimacy that we're talking about is that. You mentioned this, and I don't think that I've ever asked anyone this, but you said you're very well aware that there could be people listening right now Mm. who are experiencing same-sex attraction. They could be married with kids. It could be in college. They could be in high school. And nobody knows. Nobody knows. In the last week, just so as you know, I've had three messages from people through my website. And this is sort of typical. I'll just give you three examples. A 15-year-old girl who is really struggling and can't talk to anyone, Christian. A 20-year-old guy who has been struggling with gay pornography for years and hasn't been able to talk to anybody and get any help. And then a woman in her 30s married with children who just finally like read my book and then ended up sort of breaking down and talking to her husband about her long, like lifelong experience of same-sex attraction. All of those people could have really used safe people to talk to earlier. <laughs> I think my question for you is, I kind of have two questions. One is for that person, mm. uh, which you've walked those shoes, you've understood. You said it wasn't even until you were in your 30s that you felt safe. So my, my first question is for that person mm. and just, I mean, how do you encourage them and all the things? And then after that, I'd like for you to follow up to the person who's going to be the first person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the first person that's going to hear. Yeah. Because I think that's a crucial moment. Yeah. I would believe in someone trust. And this would be with any kind of struggle someone brings to sure. you. Like, this is it. But we're going to talk specifically about this. So first talk to the person who's listening. And maybe they've never told anybody. Yeah. Yeah. For me, the reason that I wasn't talking to my friends, I did talk to my husband, just to be clear. I think it's very profoundly unwise to marry somebody without them knowing all your things in advance. <laughs> I mean, that's just um, life. So, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but in terms of, of friends, the reason I didn't was because I was afraid that all of my Christian girlfriends would take a half step back from me. Not that they would, you know, run a mile screaming, but that they would just sort of take a half step away. Do you think they wouldn't feel safe or they would feel like, is she attracted to me? Yeah, so or just all just... the things. Like, I would go from being person with whom they felt completely safe and could do all the usual sort of intimate things without worrying about it to, oh, person who mm-hmm. they would just, just half a step back. What I realized was that actually I was taking half a step back from them because I wasn't sharing something that was really important yeah. in my life. I wasn't being honest with them about the things that, that were hard for me. And so I would encourage anyone who's listening who hasn't felt like they can talk to a friend to not rob all your friends of that opportunity. And even, I mean, the sad reality is a lot of people will have heard their friends or family members talk in negative terms about gay people yep. in ways that aren't godly and helpful and jesus honoring in and of themselves but Mm -hmm. also will have signaled to them oh this person i can't talk to this person because they're going to think all these things that may be true but i think also a lot of people just they haven't had any real experience of they've got all these stereotypes and all this junk in their minds and it may be that they do actually love you and would in fact listen to you so i would just encourage you to take that risk of talking to you know just a couple of people and i would say a couple of people It's okay to tell one person first, but I wouldn't just like put all the weight on one person in this particular thing, especially Mm -hmm. because it's just best to have more than one person. And in terms of being the kind of friend to whom someone could open up or being the kind of parent or sister or brother, you know, youth pastor, whatever it is, first, like guard your mouth and don't say those negative things Mm. as if don't assume that nobody in the room that you're talking to privately experiences same sex attraction. Don't talk about 
sort of LGBT like gay people out there as if as if there's that a- is a good message. I hope say it a little louder for the people in the back because <laughs> I think that is something that people don't guard their mouth in settings and yeah. they're saying things that they have no idea who's in the yeah. room. And and just looking at the statistics, and these are coming from a woman who's a professor at University of Utah and herself in a lesbian relationship. So this is like these aren't sort of Christian statistics. These are mm-hmm. university level kind of yeah. statistics. And about seven um, percent of men experience same sex attraction. It's only about 1% of women and 2% of men who are exclusively attracted to folks of their same sex. So actually, the largest category of same-sex attracted people is women like me, mm-hmm. by a long, long yeah. short. Yeah. And it's also true that people's patterns of attraction can change during the, their lifetime, not just from being like attracted to the same sex to the opposite, but actually also the other way around. So it's well documented that, whereas it's not actually true that people Mm -hmm. are just sort of born gay or born straight or born, you know, there's actually the potential for change Mm -hmm. over time. And so what that means is if you have 10 people in your youth group or in your Bible study, chances are at least one of them experiences at least some degree of same-sex attraction. So assume that and even maybe even call it out. Like if you're a youth group leader, say, hey, you know, we're going to be talking about what the Bible says about sexuality. The reality is in a room this size, there are probably this many people who for whom Mm -hmm. this is a really personal issue. And, and, you know, I want us all to be the sort of folks who could be a good listening ear for those people all in this together. That statistic that you just said, do they have statistics from the 60s? Have they seen an increase in people identifying this from the 60s to where we are now? Well, what's interesting, so the question of how people identify is quite different from the question of what people experience. And this woman, I quote her, uh, confronted Christianity, Lisa Diamond. She's very interesting because, as I say, she's a lesbian herself and would see herself as a sort of LGBT activist. And what she pointed out was that people weren't asking the right questions. So people weren't taking in a, you know, someone like you who ident- on paper I is see what you're saying. heterosexual. They weren't asking you have you ever experienced attraction to women? They were just asking Have you ever you. had sexual fantasy about like They weren't asking those questions. Likewise, they weren't asking a gay man, like a self-identifying gay man, when was the last time you had sex with a woman? Or like there were just a whole lot saying. of questions that weren't being asked. So what's been revealed by asking those questions is that a lot of people who identify as straight actually do experience same-sex attraction. And a lot of people who identify as gay or lesbian are also capable of experiencing opposite sex attraction. Got it. So it's just a, it's a messy picture. It is. You know what I find so interesting, and I'll, I'll speak personally for me, is over the past seven years that I've been doing this show, I've had the opportunity to interview a lot of amazing people. And embarrassingly, I would say, previous to the seven years, I had a lot of preconceived ideas mm. about someone who would identify as gay. Mm-hmm. Oh, even more preconceived ideas of someone who would maybe just experience, like the way that right. you just separated it, that's yeah. even more preconceived ideas, you know, like, oh, how could you be this and that or experience this? And I mean, you know right. what I'm saying? Like, it's just, I don't think the church has done a good job of talking about right. it. And so one of the things that's been so helpful for me is this is in life when everything is this idea of proximity and talking to people mm. who experience something different than mm-hmm. me. And I remember, I think it was in about maybe 2016, and that wasn't that long ago, people. I was telling someone I didn't know anyone that was gay. Hmm. And by what you're telling me, it's clearly false. You did. You're right. yeah. But I remember I was having a conversation. I was telling that. I've said this on the show before. And I prayed, mm. God, will you please bring people into my life mm. who are gay? And since then, I'm like, I know gay people. Right. <laughs> and it has changed and altered the way I view the scriptures. Mm-hmm. It's changed and altered the way I see people. And I think that is something that's been so difficult for the churches. There's been such a division yeah. that you cannot be same-sex attracted and be a Christian. 
Well, and I think what's happened as well, and I, I think your experience is probably very typical, is that we have raised generations of Christians on the idea that gay people are somehow sort of holistically immoral. Right. Whether they are acting out on that or not, just... I mean people who are um, actively in gay relationships, okay. but somehow there's a mm-hmm. holistic sort of negative moral aura that hangs out with gay people, right? So then what happens, and I, I hear this so often, people will say, I used to think that the Bible was against same-sex marriage. And then I met a guy through my work, he was gay, and he was a really nice guy. And he was in this really good relationship with this other guy. They seem to have a really loving relationship. And he's a great friend. He's a great contributor to the team. And so now I'm not sure. When I hear that, I think, okay, so what you were raised on in the first place wasn't actual, like, Christian teaching about sexuality. It was just kind of prejudice about yeah, gay people. Yeah, because he had this idea that he would be awful and mean and bad. Yeah, yeah. And so I think recognizing that... We need to both hold on very firmly to what the Bible says, because it is ultimately it's about this picture of Jesus' love for his, his church. It's not something that's just like an odd verse here or there. It's actually part of the huge big picture of the Bible. And if we get to the point of saying, do you know what, I'm not going to trust what the Bible says about this, we pretty much have to unravel our trust in the Bible as a whole, to be brutally honest. It's not a kind of an agree to disagree question. At the same time, we do need to let go of our weird stereotypes about what gay or lesbian people are like mm-hmm. because they're broadly speaking not true yep. and when we realize they're not true if we've held on to that as if it were biblical truth mm-hmm. rather than yeah. our own sort of cultural yeah. assumptions then we're going to be in a mess you know i hope that someone's listening and is encouraged by that because i don't think i would have even been able to verbally express what i was holding on to mm. i don't even think i knew that i had these stereotypes mm. i think that's just what i thought and i wouldn't have been able to say oh rebecca this is what i think because I think deep down I would have known that's not right. Yeah. But yet when you've grown up culturally hearing right. that, you can grow in love with the scriptures and you can stand on a biblical view of sexuality and still in the back of your mind think, well, there must be something wrong with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I've seen so much growth in my life that mm. I can verbally mm. say out loud. And I hope that encourages people mm. to be able to allow yourself to say, what are these preconceived ideas I have about someone that's different than me? Yeah. And what do we do as Christians when we encounter someone who is different from us? And especially when we encounter someone who is hostile towards us, because we have got to the point where, for understandable reasons, a lot of people who would identify as gay or lesbian Very understandable may reasons, feel yes. hostility towards people who identify as evangelical Christians. It's certainly not true. I mean, that's, it's a very mixed picture, but there's certainly some legitimate hostility there. You know, what has Jesus called us to do with even with our enemies? Love them. And we instead, we've kind of taken what the Bible says about sexual ethics as a mandate for hating people. Right. Really. Yes. Which is the opposite of, of what it is. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of conversations, right? I shouldn't even start this because we could just talk about this forever, but I wouldn't go here. There's a lot of conversations about people dismantling their faith. Mm. Is that the word I'm looking for? Dismantling, right? Like we're seeing a lot. Deconstructing. Yeah. And it makes me nervous sometimes because I'm like, how is this happening to people that I really believe and trust? And all of a sudden, what? They don't think this is true anymore. Mm. But I was listening to someone on the Holy Post the other day podcast, Mm. which I'm just, I talk about it every day. I'm the biggest (laughs) fan of this show so much. And if you're listening, guys, I'll come on to your show anytime you want. Um, But uh, Sky was interviewing someone and they talked about dismantling their faith. And they Mm. said, maybe they didn't ever have a secure faith to start with. Mm. So maybe they're dismantling from something that wasn't true. I guess my question for you is, do you get nervous when you see the dismantling of people's faith around sexual ethics? Or are you encouraged by the way the church is handling things now? Because I think we're seeing a shift a little bit. Mm. I hope. I hope. 
I, you tell me. I, I hope. Yeah. So this is actually a big reason why I wrote the latest book I just wrote, The Secular Creed, because it's looking at, you know, those yard signs, which are in my neighborhood, I'm guessing. In They're yours, here too in Austin. They will say, you know, in this house, this, we believe that black lives matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights. And then there's usually a kind of collection of other yeah. statements. Gay rights, change, change gender. And so it seems to me that broadly speaking, Christians have taken one or two approaches to the bundling up of ideas that's represented there. One is, you know, folks who've, who've looked at the first statement, Black Lives Matter, and thought, do you know what? That is true. Yeah. Like, regardless of what any organization that has that For name sure. might say as well, that's just like straight up biblical truth. The lives of black people matter profoundly to Jesus, and they have not been treated that way by many of our white, you know, evangelical forebears. So then they've seen that and they've thought, okay, I've been told that that is intrinsically tied up with love is love and affirming gay and lesbian identities and for believers. And so I'm going to grab one of those signs and I'm going to hammer it into my yard. And that likely will come because of what happened, you know, because of section two, that will likely come with moving away from uh, biblical Christianity. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, people have looked at those signs and said, okay, I know that there are some things on the sign that the Bible is against. And so I'm just going to knock the whole thing down. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any of it. I'm also going to sort of buy into the idea that racial justice and equality is intrinsically tied to these things. And so I'm going to stop my ears to the legitimate cries of my black brothers and sisters. I don't want any of it. And I think as Christians, so I think there's there's a different kind of deconstructing going on on both of those, those okay, ends. Yeah. I think what we need to do is go back to the Bible. When I read a review by Tim Keller of a, a book on Christian nationalism the other day where he was looking at the evidence that actually as people engage more and more with the scriptures, they tend to become more sure actually about Christian sexual ethics and also more likely to truly engage positively with racial equality. Racial equality and injustice. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's not the case that the more you go into the Bible, you sort of you either go in with both of those, you kind of come out with, Mm -hmm. they they actually do, it does push you in very different directions. So I think some people are going to need to deconstruct parts of what they were brought up believing, which may not be what the Bible says. Yep. Which is Um, where I'm talking about even some preconceived ideas that I had coming in about gay people. I think there needs to be some deconstruction there. And I'm admitting that there was. Yes. But I do think at the same time, a lot of people who are deconstructing the whole of their faith because of the negative attitudes they were brought up with toward gay and lesbian people, that is profoundly sad to me. And one of the things that's especially sad is that often straight Christians think that they are being loving to their same-sex attracted brothers and sisters by saying, do you know what? I'm not sure the Bible really says that gay marriage for Christians is not okay. Mm. Um, It's profoundly unloving (laughs) because it actually kind of knocks the knees out from under your brothers and sisters who experience same-sex attraction and are fighting hard to hold to Christian sexual ethics, that they are truly wanting to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. So the loving thing is to both listen and affirm not their desires none of us should just be affirming each other's desires all day long affirm what what the scriptures say and i think on the other side of that it's something beautiful i keep thinking back to a bit over a year ago before covid hit i was traveling and i'd met a woman who identified as non-binary was in a lesbian relationship sort of um, lgbt activist where i was going who'd initially been quite hostile to me but then we'd been able to develop something of a rapport and after our conversation she tweeted i genuinely feel sad for you that you've never experienced love and passion with another woman. To you? To me. Uh-huh. And I texted this to my best Christian friend, Rachel, and she replied, she's wrong about the love. And I think that is what we need to mm. hold on to, whether we're on the side of someone who, like me, experiences same-sex attraction or whether we're a Christian who, who doesn't but uh, wants to be truly 
um, helping our brothers and sisters. I think to recognize that love in the Bible is so much bigger than just sexual or romantic relationships and that we all lose out if we reduce it down to that. It's so true. Rebecca, I'm your biggest fan. I love your work. Your recent book, uh, Secular Creed, that you just mentioned, going to devour it this weekend, don't you worry. But I also read 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity, which I'm assuming this is a follow-up to Confronting Christianity. It's the junior version. It's the junior yes. version, and I'm reading it as well, and it's going to become an Ivy Book Club as well. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to let you into the book club. But as a mom to teenagers, I'm really thankful for this as well, because I think that uh, you and I are both raising children in a time that was different than we were raising children, mm. obviously, and our parents raised us in a time that was different <laughs> from they did. But there's the hard questions, and there's things mm-hmm. that they're having to deal with their classmates and their and their teammates and just even their teachers and stuff. And so I'm really grateful for this book as well. Thank you. Rebecca, I would love to know what you're reading and what you're loving. So I, you have to be a reader, reader, reader. Yeah, well, right now I'm reading Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows with my girls who are 10 and 8. I'm reading umpteen books a day with and my you son. Use, who's imagine uh, you, you use so many Harry Potter things in <laughs> this do. book. And I'm like, oh, my kids are going to love this. So, yeah, I'm also reading Sense and Sensibility with my 10 year old who's just kind of old enough to track with it, which is okay. so fun. It's like our mother daughter yeah. time. And then, well, I'm reading so many. on the way here. I read uh, Tim Keller's book, How to Evangelize the West Again, How to Reach the West Again. That's what it's called. Very slim volume. So yeah. I could read it on the plane. Mm-hmm. The most beautiful novel that I read recently. It was called Homegoing by Yagi Yazi, which it begins with two half-sisters born in Ghana in the 18th century, one of whom marries a white British slave trader and the other of whom is captured and sold as a slave. Okay. And it follows eight generations of each of their family lines and it's completely beautifully written and profoundly moving so wow. home going by yagi Yazi. that sounds amazing that sounds amazing um what are you loving these days oh i love that the sun i know it's really just is lame, it coming out in boston yet is, like boston is really cold for a long time and i don't mind that much generally but during covid where i've only been able to see friends for playdates outside man is it nice to have the sun back so yeah i just i'm actually loving writing the new book that i'm writing can you is, tell us um, about it Yeah, it's called Confronting Jesus, and it's about Jesus and the Gospels with the idea that if a friend of yours read Confronting Christianity and was interested in reading a Gospel, this would be sort of like their bridge to introduce them to who Jesus is revealed to be in the Gospels and to equip them to read a Gospel for themselves. I love it. It's so much fun. I love it. When's it come out? Well, I'm giving the manuscript in in October, so I'm I'm hoping it'll come out spring, summer next year, but who knows yeah (laughs) that's how life is who knows well rebecca thank you for your work thank you for writing such beautiful work that i've fallen in love with and you are part of equipping me to love jesus more so thank you thanks so much for having me jane You guys, we could have chatted forever. And if you listened to episode 400 just a few episodes ago, I mentioned that I was nervous about talking to Rebecca. And I don't think I told her I was nervous, but I texted a mutual friend of ours the night before. It was like, I'm so nervous. She's so smart. And I loved her and could have chatted forever. I highly recommend you check out her books. You guys, they're so good. They're so helpful. She has another book that's out for kids. It's called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, which I'm going to have my senior read this year. I think it's a great tool 
tool for us as we walk through our kids' journey with their own faith. And then her new book, The Secular Creed, which is so great and I highly recommend as well. Don't forget, we talk about the growth and diversity of the global church over on YouTube and help us build a church in northern Uganda. Guys, this week, Flashback Friday, my friend Jamie Nato comes back. And Jamie Nato was on the happy hour in 2016, January of 2016, episode number 68. When Jamie was on the show, she talked about infidelity in their marriage, and I still get so many conversations and feedback about that episode. So Jamie's back, and we have a conversation, and then you'll get to hear that Flashback Friday episode with her. Guys, thanks for listening today. Today's show was edited by the team at Podshaper. The music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abby Castell, produced by Lindsay Sweeney, and I'm your host, Jamie Ivey. Thanks for coming. Every single week, I'm glad you're here. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you love God more because of it. Come back on Friday for my friend Jamie Nato. Until then, have a happy hour with a friend.